Hey, I'm Roberta Blevins, and this is Life After MLM, a podcast where we work to end the stigma of failure in an industry systemically designed for you to fail. Join us as we dive into the real-life stories of survivors, experts, and advocates to debunk the common myths and fallacies of cults, scams, and multi-level marketing. FTC is asking for our help. On February 17th, a motion was passed to propose the implementation of a new rule for certain types of businesses to present an accurate report of earnings potential for people who are in need of a stream of income. Too many times have certain business models taken advantage of people who are desperate. In this climate where the world has been shaken, job scarcity and fear have more people than ever searching for a new way to put food on the table. Too many times have people been misled by false or deceptive earnings claims. The business models in question include delivery services, online business coaches, and most importantly, multi-level marketing. The purpose of the FTC's proposed rulemaking is to prevent more people from being scammed into funneling their money into a business opportunity without all of the facts beforehand. If this rule is implemented, it could help hundreds of thousands of people, keeping many from going into debt or getting involved in situations they cannot financially maintain. In the world of anti-MLM, our biggest goal is to educate and inform. This rulemaking could change the game for potential victims of multi-level marketing schemes. The FTC has given the public 60 days to submit comments on this proposal before making a final decision. If you or a loved one has been personally affected by false money-making claims, tricked into a business opportunity that didn't make the earnings potential clear up front. Now is the time to use your voice and tell your story. We need your help to sway the FTC's decision on this proposed rule and help craft the new regulations that multi-level marketing companies will have to abide by in order to avoid future civil suits. For more information on how to submit your public comment, please visit www.mlmchange.org. Welcome back to another episode of Life After MLM. Today, you guys know I'm super excited. That's what I do. <laughs> We're talking to my friend Dave Vaughn. I've been trying to get Dave on the show for a while and he kept saying like, I don't know if I'm the right voice. I don't know, you know, but that was like a year ago when I was really just talking to victims and we've expanded the show so much and we're talking about all these other things. And Dave and I have been friends for years. I was, we were talking right before I hit record. I'm not even really sure how we met other than just on the internet years and years ago talking about this. So I'm so excited to have you. You've been on Life After MLM, the show. And so I'm so excited to have you on the podcast to talk a little bit deeper about the politics of multi-level marketing and sort of what you've experienced um, as someone who's not even an MLM, who's someone who is very anti-MLM, 150%, I think you said, um, and really working hard on the back end of things to educate people. Um, and so welcome to the show. Also, Dave is in Taiwan, and it is what one o'clock in the morning where you are it right is, now. Yes, yes, it just okay. turned one on one. So I also want to say thank you for making that sacrifice as well. Welcome to the show, Dave. It is so great to have you. It's such a pleasure to be on, Roberta, and thank you so much. That this podcast has has already done so much uh, for people, especially the piece of compassion. I, I think that. Um, as you often talk about, right, that's the piece that you really want to bring into this community. And I think that you've certainly accomplished that one year in, I think people hearing these stories and being able to share and understand that a lot of the people that are currently in MLM are the same people that are now speaking out 
against it. And we need to show compassion for those individuals that are still involved, because one day we do hope that they're on this other side. And I think that this show is really helping people connect with that understanding and, and reach, reach that level. So um, it's a pleasure to be on here. And, and yes, I think we did first meet uh, Facebook, I, I believe. I, I was doing the, <laughs> I was never in an MLM, but I got really good at uh, direct messaging a bunch of people I didn't know whether it be through LinkedIn or Facebook. Um, fortunately, it was just in the name of trying to understand what was going on as opposed to trying to get people to buy something that I was selling, but it's not even the intention, right? It's often to join your team. So <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, I, suppose, I suppose in some ways I, I was a little bit closer to that. I, I was trying to understand. <laughs> but yes, my, my MLM journey, I, I guess I'll start there. Uh, the, uh, I never got involved in an MLM myself uh growing up obviously my mom went to tupperware parties pampered chef just for the lady up the road um she would go there and and bring home like a pizza uh pan or whatever from those from those parties um and it was just sort of this disaffected part of my life that I never imagined would play any essential role um, in my 30s. But of course, now it's sort of defined um, a lot, a large part of my life outside of uh, my regular employment. I'm, I'm a teacher here in Taiwan. I teach uh, in middle school. I teach English language arts for grades five, six, eight at the moment. So I'll be teaching those lessons in about six hours or so. I was introduced to MLM in a very innocent uh, way. I, I was uh, starting to date uh, someone. It was, it was our first date. And um, he uh, had presented himself as someone who was working uh, at an Airbnb at the time, but he was also running an online business. And I was like, okay, well, that's kind of cool. You, you have these two projects that are going on. And I asked a little bit more about the online business, but I didn't really get much of an answer, which is typical. I mean, you, you don't usually get a lot of forward-facing information when it comes to MLMs. And uh, I tried to prod a little bit more and eventually uh, I was given a, a video. And when I was given this video, it sort of like <laughs> was triggering a lot of my economic training from, from university. I, I was like, this doesn't seem sustainable. Like, <laughs> how do you keep adding people to a system that is eventually just relying on those people continuing to buy a product? They, you're going to run out of people that you know, certainly, and then you're relying on those other people. And it's just going to reach this, this limit where you're just eating off of the people that are, are below you. Um, so I tried to like carefully ask those questions because I realized that this was, you never want to challenge someone in terms of the life choices that they've made, especially when it comes to a profession that's true in America and Canada where I grew up, but, um, it's certainly true in Taiwan. You, you don't want to be doing that just because it, it is hard to make a living, right? They, you, you don't want to be questioning someone's uh, choices in terms of their, their, their life, um, their employment um so i i tried to skirt around that issue but i i eventually just sort of let it slide i came to know the company that he was working for it's market america's it's not as popular in the u.s but um it, it's been featured on on some segments it was on uh, john oliver's segment oh with, yeah uh, yes yes <laughs> with the the joe somebody or joe nobody i forget yeah and the giant hamster wheel Yes, pyrotechnics right. and the Jim and Jones crossing. outfit. He had a wheelbarrow that he was crossing Niagara Falls with. Yeah, it's 
Um, he, he, there were segments that you didn't see, like he came down from outer space in a, a space shuttle and landed with his son and he was presenting th their, their token item is the shopping annuity. Like they're, they're changing the future of online shopping. Um, they're better than Amazon because you get cash back, but <laughs> you break it down. You, effectively, people get about $7.41 in the past 25 years from the company as cash back. <laughs> like it's, it's really nothing. Oh my God. Like so on average, it's so small. Wow. You know, you guys could just get an Amazon affiliate link and do right. Amazon Associates and right. make way more than that on Amazon and yes, get cash back. They'll send never you a check. Yeah, They'll send you Amazon credit. There's all the yeah. different things. Yeah, just post it on your Instagram and never talk about it because you're probably going to make more money that way. Yeah. Wow. It's, anyway. It's wild. But yes, my ex, he, he didn't really have a chance to recruit anyone. He was part of a, a fairly large uh, leg of people that had eventually expanded to Thailand and Malaysia, which again is its other segment of MLM, is the fact that you grow downlines in other countries and <laughs> you're just exploiting the labor and people that, that live in these other countries. And oftentimes um, the salary that you're able to make in your own country is better than the money that you could be making in these other countries um, that you're expanding to. So the labor that you're exploiting is, is ultimately um, it, it's for your own advantage and not for theirs. And it's, it's unfortunate. A lot of dreams get sold on this though, because you can concentrate money up to the top in, in any country. So a lot of the people that are involved first or able to move over large teams into that organization end up making um a sizable salary that is attractive for a lot of people in different countries. So that's how you're able to amass large populations um, who are going to believe in this dream. So anyway, side tangent after side tangent, but back to the story. Um, so I was, was dating him and everything was going really great for our relationship, but there was always sort of this, this aspect. I'd eventually um, traveled to where he lived. I, he was about uh, a three hour trip away from where I was living at the time. So I, I would go to the other side of Taiwan um, and visit beautiful countryside, uh, mountains to the west and coast to the east and um, rice fields everywhere, just a, a beautiful landscape. Um, I enjoyed traveling there. The odd time it would be always raining. Like right now we're currently under 13 days of rain, which is <laughs> a bit much, but <laughs> yes, yeah, and like seven degrees at night. So you're, you're always kind of shivering. There's not really central heating or anything like that in homes here. Just, it's not, it's not part of the norm, but I had gone to travel and, and visit him a few times. And uh, I did meet his upline and some of the, the members in his organization. There was one dinner that I went to that they were trying to recruit other people. I was never really a target because I would be useless as a salesman in, in Taiwan. Um, my Chinese is, is barely passable in terms of beginner levels. So um, talking to someone and convincing them that this is their lifetime opportunity, it's, it's not really feasible. Um, I never really got involved in the business that way or was ever sort of offered it in that sense. Honestly, like the people that I met, they just seemed like genuine, good people that believed in what they were doing, right? And I think that that's true of, of most people that get involved in MLM. They, they don't have this sort of insidious kind of like, oh, I'm going to mess over all of these people that I know and be able to make a million dollars off of them. That's, that's not usually where people are coming from. In fact, I would even argue that it's barely anyone who's getting involved in MLM sort of comes at it from that perspective. So uh, meeting them, I kind of got a sense of 
the the influence and power that they had had over it. And this is <laughs> this is um, retroactively. I think at that time I wasn't really in this headspace of like, do I need to be evaluating these people in this way? But kind of looking back at it, I'm like, wow, th those people certainly had a lot of pull in in my ex's life. A lot of his decisions were based off of uh, what his upline would want for him, right? They they were communicating back and forth, not only through text messages, but also through written letters. I think that when you're writing letters to each other, just sort of um, like as a mentorship thing, right? So like they would refer to each other as, as mentor and that sort of thing, which is very Amway, which is not a surprise because I mean, Market America comes from that model. J.R. Redinger, the founder of uh, Market America, was a, a top seller in Amway. And I, I don't know what happened, but it oftentimes what does happen is that these people get pushed out because they challenge their upline authority and, and then um, they develop their own scheme that makes them a lot more money. Uh, we really have to work on that MLM family tree that Doug was talking about. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I, I do have it started and, and I can share, but it's ugly, right? It, it's so hard to map out 700 organizations over, over the course of, of a lifetime, but a lot of it does come from Amway and it's, it exploded after 19... 79 when the the case against Amway has sort of been overturned in a way it, it, it didn't it didn't bear fruit in terms of defining Amway as as a pyramid scheme so that ended up opening the door for a lot of other companies to be comfortable with the model and yes I read Ponzi-nomics you'll understand why why that case um, should have been challenged there are many reasons for that so I'll let Robert Robert it's really interesting right in that part where it's like and then it was like, and then this like no name, nobody judge just decided to come on in on the lunch break because everybody else was gone. And he was like, this looks good to me. Stamp. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. And then you had a change of change of the guard at the FTC. And yeah, no one's really sort of there to sort of defend what the decisions were from the past. So yeah, it, it's it's unfortunate and you can't you can't turn back the clock, but hopefully there, there's a lot of good things that are, are being done now. So I had sort of become more aware of of how involved the MLM was in my ex's life. So I started to investigate a little bit more, try to understand the business model, look up a couple more videos online. And then I became aware of the Dream Podcast, which I think most people, especially at that time, it was really the only sort of gateway into an understanding of MLM. Jane Marie did a, a fantastic job, I, I would argue, in terms of defining what this has become. I don't think we could get here without Jane Marie's storytelling, right? She really sort of gave a platform for people to be able to know how they can tell a story of the time that they're in MLM. She really sort of broke it down. And these are all the systems of control that you are, you are subjected to before you come to a realization that, that this is not going to give you what you, you want from it. And I think, Roberta, you, you had the difficulty of having to make that discovery for yourself without that clear understanding. Um, yeah. and, and many people have, but it's, yeah, I was actually, um, I was smack dab in the middle of filming the vice documentary. I was driving from San Diego to Corona and uh, I don't remember who told me, but they were like, Oh my God, you have to listen to this podcast. You're, you're going to love it. It's incredible. I was like, okay, I've got a long drive while we're doing this. And I, I, I plugged it in and I was listening to it. And I remember like, <laughs> so funny. I remember pulling up to meet with the vice crew in the parking lot next to the LuLaRoe warehouse oh. um, because we couldn't park on their property. So we parked next door at a different warehouse. 
And I remember getting out of the car and being like, you guys, you guys, I'm listening to this podcast. You have to write this name down. Robert Fitzpatrick. (laughs) And they're like, okay, okay. And then about five minutes later, LuLaRoe security came out like uh, via like, like all of Scientology and chased us off the property and said we had to leave. And I was like, this is exactly what they're talking about in this podcast. And it was just really, really eye-opening. And um, I think at that moment, a lot of my activism and advocacy shifted. And I was like, this is so much bigger than I thought. And that was even before Vice came out. Like we were filming it. Yeah. And it's a lot to process, right? I'm still, I just returned to listening to one of the episodes this morning as well. And it's worth it to go back to some of this stuff, especially when you're hearing from some of the people speaking within the industry because their their message hasn't changed. You think over the course of this time that they'd be trying to find a different way to sort of spin what they think. But you're listening to, to tapes from the 90s as well. The, their approach hasn't necessarily changed, right? They've always been like, no, we're about the customer and we're focusing more on the customer now. And it's like, if you started that in the 90s, why are we still here in 2020 and 2022? And it's still something that you're working on. Like if it is your focus and it's so easy for you to do, as you say, the model is something where we are pulling people one at a time to love the product and then share that product with other people. It shouldn't be that hard by that model to be focused on the customer, but right. I mean, it, and if it works from, from it the time work. that I've started listening. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, it was a big deal in the seventies as well, right? That, that was uh, the crux of, of much of the case that the FTC presented against Amway is that everyone who's buying this product is part of the, the scheme. So it seems it seems like there's a problem here. I started listening to the dream and actually I was on a bus going to visit him while I was listening to it, which was good that the three hour trip, it was easier to digest the, the whole thing. But I was like, as, listen, as I was listening to it, I'm like, how am I going to bring this up? to someone like it, it, it's I, I don't think anyone in Taiwan is talking about this kind of thing and it, it's sort of been true as I have been doing my advocacy work is is the understanding that there's still much uh, very much a taboo to be able to discuss these decisions because for a lot of people they feel like there's not much else um, that they can do it, it, it's too hard to get into a startup um, it's too difficult to do a lot of other um, side work and um it's a platform not only for young people, um, it's a platform for a lot of elderly to, to still support their family, at least that's the way they see it. In Taiwan, people live in homes that are like four or five story homes and they're, they're quite thin. Each generation will live on a different level of the home. So the grandparents might live on the first floor and then their son or daughter might live on the next one and their sister or brother would live on the other one and then their uh, children would live on the fourth or fifth floor. And the sixth floor might have some sort of um, homage to the ancestors, some sort of altar and that type of thing. So it's really much like it's a beautiful concept to sort of have the family all in one place. But it also a model like this kind of really preys on on that. Um, In Taiwan, it's one in three households have someone involved. in So it's yeah, it's it's everywhere. Um, A lot of people have have exposure to it. So. I, I was listening to the podcast, wanting to do this understanding and, and, and deep dive into an understanding of how it all worked, um, and also still trying to date <laughs> um, this person that was becoming more involved in his uh, business. He wanted to 
um, leave his job and go and possibly uh, start work with uh, an airline company, but still maintain a relationship with this company. The issue in Taiwan, and th this happens, I think, as MLMs become more prolific, is that other businesses start setting up policies against people who are selling MLMs. So if you work it for an airline in, in Taiwan, you're not allowed to be selling products uh, with other companies. Because, I, I mean, if you're a checkout staff or that sort of thing, and you're trying to market things to, to other customers in the airport, which I guess might have been a problem. I don't know. I, I imagine companies make these policies for, for specific reasons, but um, you're not supposed to be affiliated with MLM companies if, if you're working that job. So it would have meant sacrificing that position. And he made a decision during that time that he didn't want to pursue that anymore, even though it, it did seem to be a passion of his that he wanted to sort of get involved in that. So that was a little bit discouraging and, and we were still dating at the time. So I was still trying to sort of format my life around including him in, in my future, but uh, it slowly degraded over time. And it actually happened. It, Valentine's day in Taiwan is not the same as it is in America. It doesn't happen on the same day. It actually happens like three times throughout the year. There's uh, May 20th and it's not a, as a commercial as it is in the U.S. I guess when you have it more times in the year, it doesn't allow the stores to change over everything uh, in it. But we kind of really sort of lost contact on that day that they, they had had a big meeting with their upline. And I also learned after the fact that it was the time that they were sort of deciding whether or not to maintain the business. So they had to pay their sort of annual fee of whether or not to rejoin. So um, it's not a huge amount, right? But it is that commitment. And it's that big commitment that you make in MLM, right? Because when you're making that choice, it's kind of like, well, you don't go back on this, right? You, you're making this decision right now. So he had made the decision to stay, but in that, um, and I don't have confirmation on this, but it would just sort of make sense based on the other stories that I've heard. He was questioned on whether or not he was going to commit himself to the business or the relationship that he was in. And also I had heard after confronting him about all of the things that had gone on, um, whether or not he was going to cut ties with his parents who were challenging him also at the time, which is huge, right? Because as I said, like in Taiwan, you live with your family um, and he was still living with his family. You have people that are living in their 40s and 50s still with their family. So um, it was big for him to be questioning that because yeah, it, it was trying to put a wedge between him and his family members because they were saying, I don't think this is going to work for you. This this doesn't really seem like it's it's going to be part of a future. You're, you're not making money. You're you're spending money to be a part of a business. Like it should be something where you are able to sell a product that people want, not be buying it all for yourself each month, right? And they keep launching new and new products for all these different things that you you feel like you need to buy because in order for you to sell, which you never do, but because you feel like you need to be familiar with that product in order to sell it to other people. Right. You need to know how it works. Yeah. You got to be a product of the product. You have to understand how it works and what it's like, what it smells like, what it feels like so that you can recommend this. Right. And it's like, that's how you're hitting your quotas. That's why you're not like, and, and, and they're launching new products constantly. And expanding into new product lines. Like, uh, John M. Taylor talked about it as re-pyramiding. Like, on, like trying to create new product lines that are going to be attractive for new members. But essentially what you're doing is, is it's the people who are part of that pyramid structure already that are just sort of being recommitted into that same sort of scheme. And then you'll attract a few new people. But yeah, yeah you we, see, 
We see this a lot with like um, really any MLM going into the wellness space. Like Monet launched wellness not too long ago. And it was like, what? Um, And I can't remember another one just launched wellness. Oh, I think Pure Romance, the sex toy MLM, they launched a line of wellness and it's like, what is going on? But absolutely, you're right. That's re-pyramiding. That's creating, we're going into this space thinking you're going to get all these other people to join when in actuality, it's just the people that are already there just buying even more stuff. Right, yeah. And you can put up your sort of like, product volumes that you're expecting and there, there is going to be this consumption of the product right because it's highly consumable products you are going to use it each and every day and by the end of the month you're going to need a new supply of it right so it, a company can then say well we're not we're not filling up every, everyone's garage they're just taking 35 pills a day to be part of this company and it, it, it's it's foolish because it just gets flushed down the toilet um, one way or another when we we broke up it, it was hard because I, I was still I'd heard the dream podcast I had done some research but it was still like well it's probably my fault too like I, I need to look at my role in this so I I had this anxiety of like what did I do wrong like what could I have been doing better to support him I had just gone home to visit my family um right before Valentine's Day in February because it was Lunar New Year um, that always happens end of January, early February. So I had sort of been questioning myself, was it because I, I had left and, and, and didn't sort of offer that support that there was that time zone difference, as you can see, it's hard, hard for the timing to match up when you're halfway around the world to talk with people. Yeah. I, I think by the end of it, it did become very clear that it was this wedge of the MLM that had really sort of driven us apart and, that was discouraging, but at the same time, it sort of made me realize just how powerful the forces are within MLMs. And, and it would be fine if it was really supporting them, right? Like it would be something that I would just have to accept, right? This person's making a choice within their life and, and I just need to move on from that because they're, they're going to find something that benefits them in that respect. But the, a nagging feeling with MLM is like, he's not doing that. Like he is making a terrible choice for the rest of his life and he doesn't realize it yet. And I'm supposed to be walking away from this friendship and, and treating it like, oh, it, it's no big deal. He's just in a cult. And it's like, how do you do that to someone that you, you've grown to love and care for? And right. I did it the wrong way. I, <laughs> I, I didn't do it uh, the right way. I, I tried to sort of intervene in, in the ways that I could that were still sort of sensitive to what he was going through. But at, at the same time, I was sort of, it, I, I, trauma does get thrown around a lot um, these days. And, and I don't want to sort of put my position in, in a sense of trauma, but it, it was difficult for me to reset my perspective from that moment of trying to shape my life around someone that I really cared about to then suddenly um, be in the situation where I'm concerned about the rest of their life, but I have no role to play in it. And I, I see the sort of self-destructive tendencies that are going on there. Um, and also that no one else can really sort of get involved to prevent them because of the stress that's currently been put on their relationship in it. So kind of feeling like I was the only one that was really in a position where I kind of had nothing to lose to sort of try to shift the balance a little bit for them so that they could at least gain enough of a perspective of what was going on so they they wouldn't continue down that destructive path and sort of the 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 biggest concern 
through that whole experience was was me constantly like waking up at 3 a.m and just sort of so bothered by the fact that he would wake up one day and realize I have 15 people under me that I, I'm just destroying their lives in order for me to be able to make any sort of living from this. And I just, I, I felt so guilty of him getting to that point because I knew he could. I, I, I knew that he, would, he was someone fully capable. If he was going to commit himself to this and do what they were telling him to do, he could do it. But you just have to, you have, I, I felt like he had to give up so much of himself in order to get there. And I, I felt so guilty about making him go down that journey to get to that point of, of regret and, and misery and, and failure. I, I, I wanted to help bring that closer before he had to get to that point. And yeah, that was sort of going through that experience. I had realized I'm not, I'm not only witnessing an, an anomaly here. Like th this is something that's happening in all MLMs for 19 million people in the US, 120 million people around the world, right? That's a lot of relationships to be completely disintegrating because this company is promising you more than, than anything it can offer. Um, so that's where my advocacy work started, where I shifted from, I need to get my acts out of their MLM to well, I, I just need to be able to share what I understand about this. So I, I dove into the numbers, trying to model what was going on in MLM, sharing some information. Uh, just I, I was working with Ethan Vanderbilt, who was a, a creator in this space. Uh, originally, um, he stepped back from this because you need to have a life after <laughs> working in this space for five to 10 years. Um, you just, you become a, a beacon for um, people wanting to silence you. And um, you want to keep speaking about it, but it, it, becomes, it becomes untenable for you to live another life. Um, so I think, yes, you make that decision. You, you have to sort of know where to draw that line. And, and I'm so grateful that Robert Fitzpatrick has stayed with it because I don't know how he manages to do that um but I think it's yeah. just because he lives in like a, a cute little cabin in North Carolina right. and like just stays away from everything else <laughs> yes yeah, yeah no I I kind of feel like that in Taiwan as well I feel a little bit more protective and I after it, I I lived in Iraq right before the, the pandemic had started I was teaching there and that kind of felt like uh, I was safe in Iraq. <laughs> like it was no no company was going to come for me there. Like it was just sort of okay. like this, yeah sanctuary from from being able to like dig into company financials and that kind of thing and, and sort of report out this information. I I had sort of gone through the, this sort of process of like I I'm concerned about being able to share this information because there's not much out there. But I mean we got to a point um, where now like every day there's about eight or nine videos that are going up about companies um, that are, are doing this to people. So at least, yeah, it's so incredible. We're in a space now where, where this is just part of general conversation, right? You, I would say like every month there, there's a, a mainstream article that's published on MLM. Do you ever wonder how much of your personal data is out there on the internet just for anyone to find? I promise it's more than you think. 
Your name, contact info, social security number, home address, even information about your family members. It's all being compiled by data brokers and openly sold online. This can lead to a lot of problems, including identity theft, phishing attempts, harassment, and unwanted spam calls. But now you can protect your privacy with Delete Me. Signing up for the service is super easy. Just provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. They send you regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they found, where they found it, and what they removed. I got my report and I was floored with the results. Of the 105 data brokers they checked, 83 of them had my data. Delete Me then removed 173 listings of my personal data off the internet, and they make sure that it stays off too. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me at a special discount just for our listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and use promo code MLM at checkout. The only way to get the 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and enter code MLM at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash MLM code MLM. Um, and just sort of what they're doing for people. Um, the, the truth of, of many of the stories of, of people that, that come out of it. Um, so it's becoming harder and harder for these companies to tell the stories they are telling. But um, yeah, for me, it, it was really, I, I needed to understand what was going on here. And I also, like, for the first two years that I was in this, it was really sort of about, I'm going to share what I see. And I hope that someone can step forward and tell me where I'm wrong. Right? Because it's completely possible that I'm coming into this and really like, as they always say, you don't know anything about this because you haven't done it. I'm like, okay, that may be true. I, I haven't done it, but if I'm saying something that's wrong, it's going to be easy for you to point out where I'm wrong and why these numbers are incorrect and, and why I'm not seeing it. But a lot of times the pushback that you get is, is just like, oh, well, you just don't have the faith and, and lots of people don't have the faith either. And I'm like, you're asking, you're asking me to <laughs> divorce myself from, from real statistics and information that's out there that, that, that builds this reality and give that up and just sort of believe something that you're not really very specific about. Um, you yeah. just want me to understand that it all just works out in the end it's an incredible point Dave just like the way that you put it it's like yes yeah we just want you to believe if you could that'd be great right and I, which is why the dream is, is such a, a great name for the podcast as well right like it really sort of encapsulates that that idea that um you can't you can't be processing the information right when you're in a dream world you're, you're just sort of accepting things as they are and just sort of building your story as you go um so today, I think one of the big things that, that I figured I, I would talk about on the podcast following my story is this, this concept of, okay, well, what, what is this overarching organization that really sort of helps defend these companies? And, and how, how do they shirk the responsibility of the reality <laughs> that they, they do build? And, and how do they build this other grand narrative of... No, we, we, we are the embodiment of capitalism, entrepreneurship, the American dream, when facts, facts deny that. We can get started with talking about the direct selling association. I think that that's probably yeah. the easiest place to start from. Well, I was going to say, like, I, I hope that people that listen to this know, but I know that there's a lot of people that skip around on episodes. So yeah, mm -hmm. the DSA is the direct selling association, and it, it is a, a lobby and a caucus 
that protects multi-level marketing. That's right. Yeah, they started actually back in 1910, um, which is well before MLM uh, began, right? And at that time, they're, they're kind of protecting the people that are traveling around as perfume salesmen or um, selling encyclopedias, vacuums, that kind of thing. And, and these are, they're, they're salesman jobs. So, I mean, people have certain um, biases against that kind of profession, but it, it's certainly not the, the uh, level of vitriol that, that you feel with MLM because MLM takes that like schmarmy kind of like, oh, you need this in your life. This is really important for you to a whole new level when it starts your friends are the ones that are telling you this. So it, it's that kind of affinity marketing. It, it's the style that um, I'm attracted to this person. They're going to be telling me the truth. And then on top of that, they're coming to your door and ask, also saying that job that you have, you, you should be giving that up too. Like it, it's not really good for you. You should be joining me in this lifestyle because it's going to sort of secure your family. Your children are, are going to be well cared for and they get to join this business as well afterwards and it creates this whole life for you and um it's it's presenting and patching it in a way that is is destructive and and this didn't happen until the 70s where the direct selling association really sort of shifted its focus and sort of became um controlled and dominated by mlm partners um so that explosion that happened after the amway um case was decided this created a whole set of new companies that would sort of fall under this umbrella and the direct selling association operates through a board and that board is chaired by the heads of many companies or at least the c-suite so you'd have executives that are sitting um, to advise the direct selling association in terms of what they should be doing to be able to support the industry the way that they they operate they select a, a chair who is typically someone from a, a major mlm company now um, and they will lobby certain bills within Congress. They'll be um, running different events. They have an annual meeting that they, they typically do uh, in Arizona or Texas. It's, it's somewhere in the South. Um, I don't think they do it in Utah that often. Um, in fact, I think California is technically the headquarter, like the headquarter capital of MLM in the U.S., like in terms of number of businesses. That are operating there but uh, utah tends to be a, a major base for uh distributors and there are a number of headquarters there as well but they operate in a way where they're selecting people from these c-suites and making decisions for the distributors in the name of ethics i should i'm doing air quotes for for those who are listening um but it again it, it's their definition of ethics and really, I, I think that's, that's the main sort of role of the DSA is that they get to define a lot of the terms in the, they call it the channel. They don't call it an industry because an industry is like by category of product versus this is a model that is used to market a product. So they call it a channel. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> so they, that they just, Orwellian doublespeak, huh? <laughs> right. Oh, it, it, it's so so present in the DSA. Um, they completely changed the definition of uh, what a distributor is, right? In, in, 2000, <laughs> in 2018, they, they were sort of broadcasting that they had 18, 19 million people involved in, in direct selling. And then the following year, when like, it didn't suit their interests, they cut that number down to about 6 million. And, uh, they do it because 
they know that it looks bad that companies are generating only this amount of revenue. Um, and then when you divide that by the number of distributors, it, 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 people are getting pennies uh, for the work yeah. they're doing. So th- that, like, that looks bad. Yeah, they say that big number, like all these people are involved. Isn't that amazing? You want to join? And then all of us reverse engineer the numbers and go, that only means 1% is successful. And they're like, well, 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 what we meant was we do have all those people, but only 6 million of them are actually working. Everybody else is just a fan that joined and, to get the discount. And when you listen back to the dream, like Joe Mariano goes on and talks to Jane Marie and it's like, oh, you're doing this all wrong. You don't understand anything about this. You're doing, how are you calling yourself a journalist? Like <laughs> she had talked about this in the uh, MLM conference as well. It's like, he just barges into her office and is like this man who's saying, you're doing all your, your, your job wrong and you need to do, get better at doing your job because I'm going to tell you all the things that you did wrong in this podcast. And he doesn't necessarily present any facts. He just sort of represents what the definition should be for what she should be using in, in her accounts of journalism. And the DSA has just sort of redefined a lot of things within the industry. Um, and even many of the companies have sort of walked away from it. Like in the case of Joe Mariano, he, he's the current uh, president of the DSA. And, or sorry, I, I keep getting this mixed up. I should make sure. He's either the chair or the president. The, they have a chair and a president, which, which is common in most, most companies, right? But I mean, for, for a common person, it's just like, aren't those the same thing? Um, the chair is sort of the one who oversees a lot of the, the business decisions of the board, which I believe is the company head. And then I believe Joe Mariano is technically his title is, yes, he's the president since 2011. So he's been there for 11 years as president. He's technically been involved in the DSA for, I think it's 36 years. So he, he's been there for a while. He kind of knows the whole story. And he, he went in and told Jane Marie on the dream that, first of all, this isn't a job. This is an activity that people do. So you can't be judging us for the money that people are or are not making because it's just an activity, right? Like if you want to go play tennis, go play tennis. If you want to sell a bunch of products, go sell a bunch of products. It's It's just a hobby. If selling lipstick is your hobby, like who am I to stop you? Right. No one on Facebook is saying, this is my hobby. Can you, can you have fun and join me? Like, can we all sit together and and stitch um, a nice little crochet sweater? It's not a hobby. And I, I think he knows that, but he, he wants to redefine it. And his whole interview with Jane Marie actually started with the line, I want to make sure I don't misrepresent him. He says, I believe that I am telling the truth. I'm not telling any lies because I believe that I am telling the truth. Believe. He's been in this job for 36 years. I, I'm not going to say that he's lying, but he's certainly choosing not to look at reality and just sort of occupy this space where only the information that he consumes is consistent with what he already believes. And I mean, that, that's a lot of us, right? Like that's cognitive dissonance, that, 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 that's a lot of the concepts that we talk about that are related to psychology that reinforce what a lot of people go through with an MLM. But I mean, it, these founders and, and owners, I, I don't believe that, that even they are necessarily bad or deceptive people. They just, I think a lot of them get swept up in the positive reinforcement bias of, of what they've created, right? They only want to hear the good news. Like I'm, I, I'm, yeah. I, I don't know what you can say, but I'm sure Deanne around her has these sort of like 
um, voices that keep telling her that she's doing a great job, that she's doing everything right, that, that she's really helping people. And the only ones that aren't really accomplishing anything are, are the ones that are giving up or, or they're not working hard enough or, or they're trying, trying something else that isn't the way that she said to do it. So they're failing because they, they haven't really committed themselves to the one path that, that they should be following. Yeah. And if you ever catch her on any lives, I mean, I'm blocked, but if you ever catch her on a live, if anybody comes in and asks any question, like she's always looking at the comments, she's reading the comments. She's like, oh, we got a hater. Let's get rid of that hater. Oh, don't be a hater, everybody. We just want to love everyone and have positive vibes. And this is a business. And she just gets more manic as she goes along. Um, And I also remember um, anytime Deanne had a bad day or if there was bad press that came around, there definitely was this message that was disseminated, whether it was through like an email or whether it was through, uh, just your upline being like, Hey, this is what's going on. But we were asked to post gratitude posts for Deanne and hashtag it because of Deanne so that Deanne could see these things and Deanne could feel better. We could share, um, how much we loved her. And and basically the entire company was love bombing Deanne at the exact same time. And and it was, it was asked if we would do that, it would be great. Right. Which doesn't make it that surprising when a lot of the C-suite executives are family members, right? They know how to be able to support this person and that's what they're doing, right? They're, they're not necessarily supporting the, the story or false beliefs that they've created. They're supporting this person that they love. But ultimately right. what it is doing for everyone else is it's supporting this fake story that they, they've created. Yeah. And I, I, don't, I don't think it's very hard to bring a company into court about this because they can occupy the same position that Joe just did, right? Of saying, well, I believe everything that I'm saying. So isn't that the truth? It's like, yeah. it, it, it's difficult. And I, I mean, Doug can speak better to this than I can in terms of the, the legal um, precedence of that but I mean you you also <laughs> the U.S. went through this uh, for a number of years I, I think it, it goes through it ultimately under any administration but within politics but a, a lot of people do the things that they do because they believe it at the time the, the problem with a lot of things like MLM is they just don't choose to know the truth they're, they're trying to silence anyone who is trying to sort of present that to them yeah, that's like, really interesting. Cash. Being presented the truth and then, you know, being like, they're a hater. It's like, mm-hmm. but they're presenting the truth. No, 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 no. We don't believe that to be the truth. And so therefore it is not the truth. Right. E- even when people within their organization are telling them, hey, this looks bad. Avon left the DSA because her life, there was the security fraud allegations against them that they then paid off. But then also the FTC action that was taken against them for being a pyramid scheme and then sort of through the reporting and also um, Edith Ramirez, the uh, FTC chair at the time, was speaking in front of a journalist panel and they had asked the question whether or not her life was a pyramid scheme and she gave this sort of um, more famous sort of remark that they're not, not a pyramid scheme. So we yes. didn't really decide whether or not they're a pyramid scheme. They're just not, not a pyramid scheme. I love, like, that's one of my favorite quotes. Well, they're not, not a pyramid scheme. <laughs> right. like, um, that means that it's yes. a pyramid scheme. That's yes. a double negative. <laughs> right. As an FTC government body, they, they didn't really want to come out and say that, right. They, they got enough of what they wanted from, from Herbalife, I guess, at the time to just sort of walk away from that. It is interesting what you say about Avon. Because I, I, you know, I knew that as well, that they had left the DSA because they felt 
that the ethics weren't there, that it was unfair, that the DSA is allowing this sort of stuff and they just didn't want to be associated with it. But, but Avon is still an MLM. And and here's another thing with Avon. They were a, a direct selling company until 2005. That's when they became an MLM. Right. And a lot of that is due to the fact that Amway and Mary Kay actually tried to take them over. They, they did a hostile takeover of their stock, their publicly traded stock. Both of them tried to buy them out when they basically bottomed out Avon. And then some of the C-suite executives from those companies had moved over to Avon and restructured the company. So it operated as an Avon. And Avon is an interesting case as well because it also split, right? So you have the American Canadian branch of Avon, which sort of operates as a separate entity from the now Brazil-based Avon, which operates around the world. So it's a complex story, but yeah, there's stuff there in terms of, they pulled out of Australia, did they not? I think in 2018 or 17. I'm trying to remember. Not sure about they, that. They had, they had to collapse one of their, their, their branches, I think, which is another interesting business. Like, if you look at MLM from the perspective of running a business, a lot of people say like, oh, well, it, it's this earth-changing movement that is really sort of solving a lot of business problems. But I mean, ultimately, these MLMs are only, they're building almost like a religious following of their products and people are, are buying, going to church every month to get their their new product shipment and then being able to sustain a life in that way by by also getting other people to believe in this sort of system that is leading them towards this future possible euphoria or enlightenment or whatever it be so um it's it's difficult to watch um and i think when you look at at it from a business perspective um, it's hard to see it as sustainable, but I think a lot of these companies don't really care that, that they last a long time. Like you, you look at the track record of them, the vast majority of MLM companies, yes, there's the Herbalife and Amway and uh, LuLaRoe is, is, is much more sort of like a smaller story that seems it, it, it's hard to tell when, when that sort of trigger is going to be pulled in terms of how long it lasts. But like there are very short term MLM companies that, that barely last a long time and, and they're not really designed to necessarily sustain themselves in perpetuity there they will die off and there will be other companies that that pop up if there's not proper regulation so um now what do you think the reason because i have my own theories about these smaller companies that pop up like volo that was one that popped up and was gone within a couple months um and there's other that you know sustain for a year or two before they disappear as well but what are your thoughts on on why these companies disappear i guess for me, it, it's either that they're able to be poached in some manner, because I mean, they're able to build up this distributor force that is loyal to the idea, which makes it easy to migrate to other organizations. Or the other option is that they get some sort of uh, attention from a regulator. Um, I know Success by Health is an organization that has uh, the attention of the FTC because one of the founders of Success by Health has had previous action taken against him by the FTC. So there is that case as well. Um, but w- what is your your read on it? Well, the whole like being absorbed into another company, like you said, yeah. is, is one of them. Um, and the other one I think is throwing someone to the fire as like, oh, mm-hmm. see, they were the pyramid scheme. That's why they were shut down. And like just letting someone be the sacrifice, basically throwing them into the volcano and being like, 
they were the pyramid scheme. And if we were a pyramid scheme, we would have also been shut down. But we weren't shut down because we're not a pyramid scheme because those are illegal. And that's why they were shut down. Like it feels a lot sometimes like that rhetoric. um, That's uh, that's one of my theories. I I don't think that that is necessarily incorrect because you see it like the direct selling self-regulatory council, the DSSRC uh, was set up as an organization in affiliation with the Better Business Bureau, which (laughs) um, the Better Business Bureau always seems like it's going to be an organization that you can trust, right? You go on a website and you can check the rating of a company and it seems like, oh, this is a really good group that that allows me to make conscious decisions as a consumer. But um, the, the Better Business Bureau is actually split into two different kind of businesses. There's the national program, which is actually a completely different business than the more local branches that run. Um, the local branches also have their own problems, like a lot of them sort of, they will award um, headquarter based um, MLMs that, that operate in their, their district, they'll give them awards and they'll often go to their conferences because, hey, it's a chance to be on stage and present what the Better, better Business Bureau is to 100,000 people or whoever might be there in attendance. So, so that's one aspect, but this national programs uh, component is one that the, the DSA has partnered with to sort of run this ethics council, which is really just, this is in order to sort of build the gut, or this is allegedly, let me <laughs> sort of point out that this is my thoughts on it. it. It is not necessarily in writing that this is what it does, but it's kind of like this security blanket. So things don't get directly reported to the FTC from within the industry. They want to be able to sort of process the information first and then share it if they feel like um, it warrants being shared. But ultimately what's happening, and I think in the case that you're mentioning, they do pass information for these really small companies to the FTC or, or other sort of industry active regulators or, or whatnot to take action against these smaller companies to, again, point out the fact that like, hey, we're doing our due diligence. We're, we're making sure that this channel is clean and we want to make sure that everyone is who gets involved in an MLM is making the right choice in, in terms of what, what, what they're looking to get involved with. So it's not a scam. But yeah, th- that's Herbalife, that's Amway, that's New Skin, that's any of the ones that, that you can name that are sort of been around for a very long time. And everyone is just like, Ugh, I wouldn't get involved in that one. That, that, that one's nasty. Those are the ones that are, are, are controlling and, and regulating who, who gets to move on, right? So they use the term direct selling association, but really you need to think of it as it's USANA. USANA uh, head person is the current um, chair, which yeah, he has some lovely musicals that you can check out. Um, he also, he really likes to dress up in costumes and he posts that on his Twitter. So Kevin Guess, he's, <laughs> if you, if you want to know the mind of a, uh, of a founder, you can look at his. Um, we reacted to one of the USANA musicals and, and you were the one that sent them to me. Uh, yeah. And we're going to react to another one. And you've sent me a ton of stuff that we're going to react to that are really fun. But my God, if you guys haven't seen our Life after MLM, the show where we react to you saw to the musical. I will throw that in the show notes because it's it's a fun fun adventure. Yeah, um, I, I also learned so much about musical theater from watching it. Right, so it, it's valuable in many respects. So definitely, go I mean, it. it's entertaining as a musical. Yeah. It really yeah. was. Yeah. No, I, as as you were saying in it, like the the actors and 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 people, they did a fantastic job with it. But yeah, the, the whole concept of, of getting people to commit to, to the company, it's, 
My favorite part is when they sing the um, the FTC disclaimer about <laughs> this is Income this is about energy. due diligence and hard work. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Sorry. Right. right. Yeah. And I, I mean, ultimately, when you look at these people, they they got involved 20, 30 years ago, right? Like when you're going through it, and it's like this can happen today, sure, but you're seeing it happen when someone's company hopping with thousand person teams right like I, I i just watched it happen with someone move from lime life to modere which happens a lot I, I, a lot of companies are now sort of opening up their their um compliance standards and making it so you can run two businesses at once because really they tried to sort of reduce it to you can only sell for this company but now they're like oh no we're losing all of our sellers they're moving from this makeup company to this wellness company can't they do both? But for right now, it's okay. But eventually that wellness company is going to start selling makeup and the makeup company is going to start selling wellness. And then you're directly in competition with one another. Yeah. You, as we said, you need to re-pyramid and you need to Absolutely. expand your product offerings. So. And Modere is um, allegedly <laughs> poaching a lot of people allegedly because they allegedly offer bridge contracts, allegedly. I just really want to protect myself right. here when allegedly, I say that. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I actually um, was recruited to mm. Modere after LuLaRoe and yeah. was offered these alleged bridge contracts to join. Um, right. I can offer this to you. How many of your team members would move with you? Is that something that you could do? Like you were this, this, and that. And it actually literally happened to me within a few weeks of me leaving LuLaRoe. Um, And so when I say, oh, it's when I see anything, like all of the the tops from Young Living that left Young Living and went to Modere this summer. Right. Absolutely. There are bridge contracts. And if you look um, in the uh, income disclosure statements of a lot of these multi-level marketing companies, some of them will have, you know, like the average time it took somebody to hit this rank. That's an interesting thing that they put on there. I think maybe they're trying to say, look, it's possible. Someone did it in four months, but those are usually indicative of bridge contracts. If you yeah. see someone hitting the, the top ranks within four months. Yeah. They, they had a team, they were recruited, they were poached, they moved everybody over um, and were offered money to do that. Right. You can't imagine that someone's going to move into a makeup space from from selling essential oils and be able to make three hundred thousand dollars that first month. Right. Like you you just can't make that switch. It's not humanly possible. The reason why it's happening is because you're migrating this massive team that's buying all of this product, which are the kits. But that doesn't necessarily get counted as, oh, well, it's a pyramid scheme because all these people are paying things because they're paying for that product essentially. But really people are making that decision based off of not necessarily product, but moving with that person. And then that's creating the, the volume that's under them to create the, the, the returns that you end up being able to talk about in terms of them being a millionaire. So the DSSRC um, with that, that national BBB program, um, they started fairly recently. It was in 2019 that they really sort of launched. This is a branch of, of the DSA, and, and they're really sort of marketing it as like, we are, we are making sure that consumers are protected, but we, we aren't seeing that. So as you say, and, and as I allege as well, we're both alleging, is that it seems like these types of organizations are set up to just sort of be able to peel off some of the fat from the the groups to say like we're doing the good job of making sure that everyone is safe when they participate in MLM 
right? You can poach a company that has a hundred or a thousand reps and just say like, look at this bad company that was, that made a million dollars off of these people when Herbalife is making tens of millions of more of that. And, and yeah, they, they, they get to do what they, they're doing and, and we can stand back and sort of suspect what's going on, even though the regulators are having trouble calling, calling them out on that. The money that the DSA actually gives to the Better Business Bureau, you can actually look up. Um, ProPublica publishes a lot of charity uh, tax returns. Um, you can go on there and type in any charitable organization or any nonprofit. Um, the DSA actually is that. So you can go on there and you can look at their tax records. And in 2019, in order to sustain this um, new partnership with the Better, Better Business Bureau, um, they actually donated, I think, it, is it 390000 in that document? 890,000. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, just a half million more than what I said. Um, just pennies. Um, so in order to sort of, yeah, um, in order to build that partnership, right, um, you're paying money for it. And the DSA is, I don't want to say it's buying protection, but w- what else would you necessarily say, right? The, it's buying the reputation of the Better Business Bureau in some respects. Maybe that's not the only decision that it's making, but part of that money that they're paying is that reputation that Better Business Bureau offers that program. Otherwise, the DSA would run it by themselves. But uh, the DSA realizes that, hey, we don't have the greatest reputation in this space. We need other partners that we need to be able to rely on um, to support us with this and and. I mean, the Better Business Bureau is also a nonprofit. It needs money to run. So, I mean, I can't really count it out for having to make that decision of partnering with the DSA. And you, ultimately, like, just like MLM, you want to be doing something to help others. And if you understand that that's what you're doing, then um, you're going to say yes. But um, the results seem to be not producing that outcome. And, and then it leads people to at least suspect that there's more nefarious um, deeds at work. Um, so yes, being able to afford 890000 to give to a group sort of points out the fact that um, the DSA makes a decent living. Um, they draw in about $4.4 million in terms of memberships from their companies, um, which is rather impressive because <laughs> their membership has been declining. As we noted, Avon left the DSA. Avon was not the only one to leave the DSA at that time. So in 2011, the DSA had around 200 member companies, at least that's what they listed on their website. Um, today, they still leave that number up on their main page because maybe someone forgot to change it. Um, but if you dig into uh, some of the other back pages, you'll see that there's only about 106 members that they listed. I think they account for maybe 119. So they, they lost half of their membership in a decade. Um, so, I mean, good job, Joe. <laughs> I mean, thanks for joining um, the team. You helped help cut the DSA membership in half. And I mean, like, you can market that as being like, well, that's just me policing the industry and, and cutting out the people who don't belong here. But, I mean, one of their, their top members, uh, Team National, uh, which is like a car care MLM, which is not really something that we hear a lot about because it's not really, I don't know, it, it, it's more for the, the dudes who... Um, like their cars, I guess. I, I don't know. There's they... like a car care MLM. Yeah, it, it has oil services and different equipment that you put on your car to make it more efficient. I mean, just like you look after your body, right? Like you want to look after your car. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, there's pet care. There's all that stuff, right? So, um, you can really sort of make anything uh, an MLM. Um, I mean, here there's. I always forget the name, but 
dang, I can't remember, but it, it uses deer placenta as a sort of deer. Big, yeah, the, the yeah the leftover remains of a baby deer um, from from the mother. They use that and dry it, and then it gets put into a pill, and you take it, and apparently it helps you recover from certain things. <laughs> Specifically, I, I was told about it by someone in Taiwan of it helping the cancer um, survivor. Yeah, of course, oh, like cancer, cancer right. tends to be that that big one that Emma mm -hmm. likes to use. It's like, oh, every, this fixes that. Wow. We we have found that secret pill that they talk about on the news, but never really release. And it's all part of that. Oh my God. Like this is why conspiracies are so connected to MLM as well, right? Like people want to believe that there are these sort of um, right. It's like solutions. Yeah, so, they're believing these like fringe theories, uh, you know. And then an MLM pops up selling that exact supplement, and they're like, "See, <laughs> like, there's a whole company that's backing what I believe." And they're repeating this person's story of one person right. who, who took the product and, hey, they recovered. They also took all the treatment that was available in the hospital. But when they took this product as well, it's probably all that product's um, doing because someone else wasn't taking this product and they died. So, like, obviously it works. Um, yes, it, that's not necessarily how reality works, but wow. uh, you have to be aware of those fallacies. Anyway, the DSA makes a lot of money and it pays the people that work for it quite handsomely like uh joe mariano i think in 2018 he made 600 let me double check the notes that i've made because 2018 he made 690,000, and 2019 according to tax records he made i think it's more than that right but i believe for him it was a good return of seven hundred and three thousand two hundred nine dollars with um some of the other things that he got so he got a, a raise of about 10,000 between 2018 and 2019. He lost some members and they never adopted the legislation that he was trying to pass. And <laughs> many of the other things that he was doing, like he, he, he got a bonus from that. So I, I guess good for him. I don't really know how you make more money as a DSA member when you're losing people, but what? yeah, um... he, he's, he, if, if he's making money off of the companies, I don't, and he's doing such a bad job of <laughs> making them seem legitimate. Um, that's my opinion. Um, <laughs> and he's getting paid more for it. I mean, in some ways, I kind of want to celebrate him because <laughs> as long as he, he's in charge and, and the anti-MLM movement is, is rising against a lot of their positions and um, very recently with the FTC's orders, right? There, there's a lot to question about what the DSA is publishing in terms of statistics. There's like three or four questions within the, the FTC's guidance that is questioning whether or not the uh, information that is published by um, associations within the organization can be trusted. And like, do consumers have a, have a reason to judge, judge this? And it's like, this question feels rather targeted. Like, it's not like that's a problem for Uber or that sort of thing. I don't, I don't think that there, there are many associations that are publishing right. false statistics in that regard. There seems to be one association that is doing that a lot. <laughs> I mean, when you get talking about this type of thing, there, there's so many numbers, there's, there's so much history, there, there's a lot going on. And it's sort of divorced from a lot of the um, more sort of passionate stuff that people can really sort of get involved in. And I think that's why it's hard to, to generate the interest in the stuff. It, it's really important to understand this. But it's, it's like learning really deep history. Um, yeah. Unless you're really into that, that period of information or 
business history, which I, they don't even offer that as subject in, in school, right? So like, there's not even enough interest to to make a class for it. So yeah, um, it's it's really interesting. I, I would wish, I would really hope that economics teachers would teach Ponzinomics. That would be really great. Um, but with this FTC vote, people have been asking me like, you know, why is Amazon and, and Uber and these things included for the gig work? Like MLMs are not like that. And I completely agree. And when we were going down the points that um, that Bill had sort of bulleted, there were definitely questions that I was like, this is really only an MLM thing. Like this is not happening in any of these other industries that are lumped into this business opportunity rule. This is absolutely only an MLM thing. And it, it kind of feels like, I, I feel like the FTC needs to make a distinction. And it needs to be a separate rule. There can be a business opportunity rule for existing business opportunity to add gig work into that for sure. But MLM is not the same. It is not the same at all. It's just not the same. Um, and a lot of the things we did a, a live chat where we talked about this before we talked to Bill. And um, it, it's just very interesting to me because like I'm saying, like this is an MLM specific issue. So why is it being lumped in with legitimate businesses and legitimate opportunities? I understand like the Venn diagram and the cross section of where these are related. But again, like most of these things that they're dealing with in this business opportunity rule ruling, it's it MLM, it's just like, yeah. I feel like that's the next step. Once we get right. this ruling, the next step would be to separate these things because they are completely different and MLMs are just going to find a way to find loopholes and to hide in this new opportunity rule. Uh, and it's, yeah. Yeah. I, I can understand also from the regulators perspective that they, they keep it very vague because they don't want to look like they're coming after a specific channel um, to use the DSA's <laughs> definitions. Um, and I also, it, doing more history stuff <laughs> back in 2006 the reason why the ftc originally looked at the business opportunity rule was because they were getting endless reports from earnings claims of mlm companies right that was the original intention of the business opportunity rule is that they wanted to sort of go after this but they broadened it to sort of expand to more businesses that are involved in that then they got 17,000 comments which in large part was due to not only the dsa getting involved but you look at those public comments which are available they're like cut and paste um templates from amway essentially a lot of the lines of affiliation that are under amway like network 21 worldwide dream builders um your brit worldwide group the dexter yeager teams like they all contributed to that so i was going through a list of them i i was trying to <laughs> i got my mom to try to help me as well back in canada um going through spreadsheets because she she worked in finance for the government so she kind of is familiar with that kind of thing i was just sort of trying to go through the um documents that they had because there's no real reporting on on where these people were um offering their comments from but a lot of them were amway like uh, i went through a bit 500 of them and about 380 of them were, were Amway um, comments. So again, wow. these, these are just, they're, they're getting on Zoom calls and just being like, okay, we're going to sit down. We're going to write up these comments together and basically copying and pasting information, putting in some personal details for themselves because you need to differentiate it to make it substantial enough. 
Um, but at the time, they weren't looking for specific evidence. This time, when they are asking for it, right, they want the, the screenshots or, or any sort of information that really sort of proves the point that you're making, because it's going to help um, things a lot more. So um, yeah, they, there's that whole history as well. And, and the DSA, again, like this, this is part of their role, right? They, they want to make sure that their interests are supported and their interests are these corporate executives of the companies, right? It's not the distributors. As much as they say that it is, right? A lot of their, their business decisions are made not in the interest of protecting those distributors, because if it was, they would do a lot of things differently. Um, I, I was going after the direct selling association in Canada because of the way that they publish their statistics. They don't really sort of present the opportunity um, in the way that you want to know about it, right? They, they say that over 75% of their, their business builders are women, but then they, they share the statistics and they don't share the breakdown of, of how it's working, right? And a lot of these cases, it's a lot of couples that are at the top that were friends or associates of many of the founders and the founders themselves are also in large part involved in these schemes. Um, and many of those people are men and women couples. And then it's all the downline that it is a lot of women that are not making the vast amounts of money that they seem to be claiming supports this 75% industry dominated by women. So again, there's yeah. lots well, of- Well, it's very interesting. Most of the heads of MLMs are men. Um, and most of the heads of MLMs are also customer number one on the pyramid. And so not only are they getting their CEO payment and all of that, uh, and their stock options and whatever, but they're also getting, uh, everybody's in their downline. So they're getting that bonus check as well. Mm-hmm. And it, it's funny, you mentioned customer number one. But a lot of these founders, right, they often, um, they're not, they, they don't give the appearance that they're, they're following their products. Um, Deanne is an exception, right? She is always in some sort of garment related to LuLaRoe. Um, but there, there are many founders as, as well that if their products do what they say they're doing, they don't necessarily present that image to people. Right? You have a lot of men that are in wellness um, groups and and um they don't necessarily look like they're 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 consuming the product regular in the way that they are presenting some of their coaches that often come into um the business already really sort of the ideal image of of what you would want someone to look like taking the product so in Beachbody right you have someone who has a large beer belly and and just sort of saying like oh this is a really great program but not necessarily demonstrating that they've used the product at all Um, but they are receiving a lot of the the benefit from it I use Beachbody not not necessarily to target the the founder there but just sort of illustrate the point um, I, I should say just any sort of fitness company uh, that would be within the MLM space. Um, Dave, are you saying that they're not a product of their own product? I, I, I don't know what I'm saying there because it does confuse me. I, I hear it all the time, specifically with Market America. It, it, it challenges me. Lauren Riddinger is a beautiful woman who, who wear, wears the best makeup. Um, and I, I suppose she uses her stuff as well, but then they also have a lot of wellness programs and 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 whatnot and it it raises questions for me in terms of whether or not they are consuming it all the time and whether the product works so i mean i i completely agree with you (laughs) i don't think a lot of these people especially when the product is not something that like is outwardly shown like deanne wearing lularoe head to toe um 
when it's not like that, and you can't really prove whether the supplements you're taking are actually your company's or something better because you're a millionaire and can afford literally the best of the best of the best. Um, And again, like there are products and MLMs that are great. That's part of it, unfortunately. Right. But at the same time, like I, I, I tend to agree with you here. I don't think that most of these heads of MLMs are really the product of the product. Right. And uh, you shouldn't have to be right. Like in a business at the end of the day, you don't have to have a vacuum in every single room. If you're a vacuum sales, um, it, it, it's not required that, 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 that is your life and you're consuming the product in that way. Um, that expectation is just being pushed on us by MLM companies. So I don't want to go on about numbers and, and that sort of thing. And I hope this is useful um, in terms of looking at the DSA. Uh, the last thing that I, I wanted to wrap up with is um, in August of this past year, I published a couple of questions that I was hoping Jer- Joel Mariano might be of interest to respond to. I originally reached out to him in 2018. Um, he was on a live, or sorry, 2019, he was on a live on Facebook. Um, and I'd sent a question through the chat being like, if you're a company that operates through ethics, it seems very interesting for me that you, you don't necessarily advance the ethics of your, your distributors. Um, and many ways, a lot of the information that you do publish, um, it might be inherently unethical. And the system itself seems unethical because you, you can't promise the, the things that you, you are suggesting. It doesn't seem right to do that because you know it, at the end of the day, it just gets to the point where it, the business can't sustain itself. So how, how do you sort of account for this? Um, he had responded to me by email, uh, the president of the DSA. I was like, I responded with like, do you not have other people <laughs> working in the group? Like, it, it seems interesting to me that you feel the need to respond if, if this is an organization. I, I'm more than happy to talk to you, but it, it does surprise me that you're taking time out of your day to respond to just a Facebook comment in this way. Um, because I had gone for like two months before I got that email. So um, I never heard from him, I guess, after that, I, I guess I made myself seem too small to respond to. But I tried to reach out and, and contact a few other people. I, I never got an answer. So I had sent him a couple of questions, some of which we've gone over today. So the fact that DSA has shrank during his term and how he keeps getting more money and whether or not that's useful, the claims of female empowerment and how can that be made when, when people, um, when you, you don't necessarily share the, the income of, of most people and the fact that most of the people making tons of money within these companies um, are a lot of the, the men who, who sit at the top of these companies and sort of occupy that space, right? For, for um, the people who are, who could be working very hard. Like if they, they want us to believe that there are those people that are just getting involved to sell the product and work really hard. First of all, their compensation plans don't necessarily reward those people that are doing that. Um, you look at um, any of these companies, I, I very recently um, I'm going through and hopefully sharing with, with uh, Hannah, who's another creator, um, some of the uh, stock information that's published of these public companies, going through the commission percentage based on the, the revenue that these companies are making. It's basically flat for a very long time, like throughout history, they, they haven't really changed it. Um, but of interest for me was just sort of the peak period during the pandemic, how the, these companies have performed. Um, and yeah, it, it just, it seems like a lot of that money accrues at the top, which is w- what we're assuming. Um, and it, it's very hard to sort of make the claims that, that a lot of uh, the DSA is, is making. 
in that respect. So it, again, check out some of that information. Some of the other questions that I, I had asked um, are with respect to those definition changes, um, the code of ethics that the DSA had launched, this concept of the American dream. Again, I, it seems like we touched on all these. The, the other big thing is that uh, the, the direct selling association is also kind of like a, a model within the US is now exported through the World Federation of Direct Selling Associations. And I say that because they share the same office space in DC, right? So you can't necessarily distinguish the two from one another when you share the same address. It's, it's hard to say <laughs> that we're not affiliated when you're in the same space as that other person, you're doing the same type of work. Um, so this gets this gets set up in Pakistan, it gets set up in Taiwan, it, it, got, it was set up, um, I, I, when I was living in Iraq, there, my librarian at the school, she was selling Herbalife, it functioned slightly differently, but even in Iraq, you would have that, there were, there were women selling Avon and Mary Kay in the malls, like it was an actual pop-up shop that had been set up there. So, I mean, these companies are, are everywhere around the world, and these direct selling associations are lobbying governments to be able to allow them to set up shop um, in these or in these countries around the world and exploiting a lot of people. Um, the most heinous cases, like OneCoin in Uganda and, and Nigeria, um, a lot of people got involved in it. it. It's just terrible. There are some creators that you can find on YouTube that, that share their experiences, um, but it, it, it's less common uh, there. And I guess I'll leave with my lasting message is that I hope that um, as we understand these industries and, and how they function and taking action in the U.S., um, we try to keep in mind that um, unless they can really sort of be stopped completely in the U.S. and, and, and shut down, um, we need to be conscious of, of the people that are around the world that, that don't necessarily have this platform or space to be able to have these full conversations. It's good that there's a ton of creators. I, I was on Life After MLM with Karina and Blanca. And they're doing amazing work to make sure that this message is getting um, sent out and, and broadcasted within uh, the Latin American community um, and the Spanish speaking world. But um, just making sure that we also try to uh, be mindful of how, how, how much of an impact it has even outside the U.S. and Canada. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point. A lot of people don't understand like how big MLM is outside of the U.S. because the majority of our listeners are in the U.S. We have people from all over the world. It's really incredible. But um, the majority of the stories that we hear are from the U.S., but it's happening everywhere. Yeah. Uh, you know, Amway is partially responsible for MLMs being in China. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I would say I wouldn't say partially. I'd say pretty much like completely. But right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah. They needed a billion more warm bodies to suck into their pyramid scheme. And so they worked really hard to get the World Trade Organization to allow China to to be a part of that. And, you know, everything that happened to the economy after that happened. Thanks, Amway. Right. Yeah. And and China is a special case. I I won't go too deep into this, but um, the government actually regulates against MLMs. So they can't set up the distributorship model that you have mostly throughout the world. Um, you can't have affiliates under you. But what they do is they they make up for that in the fact that there's still people recruiting people, but they technically get hired through like hours of work um, contracts that basically mimic the sort of 
organizational structure that you see. The, the concern that the, the government had in China, the, the Communist Party of China, is that a lot of people were getting too swept up in these organizations, right? Like in, in China, there's a typical line that you want to be able to sort of follow, and you don't necessarily want to go off that path. And, and many of these organizations were leading people down a different path that wasn't the one that the, the government necessarily wanted people to follow. So um, there were some concerns that way and, and regulation was brought forward, right? That they completely paused the industry. You weren't allowed to sell Herbalife and new skin products throughout most of 2019. So you had a giant dip for these companies and you still see this dip affecting uh, the companies in China. Many of them have taken China out of their Asian market um, uh, numbers on many of their stock portfolios because they haven't really corrected this. And I mean, also at that time, you saw all this money being funneled into China to be able to buy them favors, right? Herbalife became a sponsor for the Olympics um, in part, and again, allegedly, but it also sort of seems to be supported by the Security uh, Exchange Commission's action against Herbalife um, by buying favor through the, the Communist Party of China. So again, these companies are going to do whatever they can in order to get enough people to join the company. It's not about selling the product, really. It's, it's about where can we find enough warm bodies to be able to continue to buy this product on a regular basis um, and think that they're, they're changing the world by doing it. Well, this has been incredibly eye-opening. I hope most people listening are going, I'm sorry, what did they just talk about? Um, it's true. It's so true. Um, and a lot of people say, well, MLMs don't get political. You know, I, I don't want to listen to politics. And again, like on the show, we will go into the spaces that MLM has infiltrated to sort of unteach those biases and relearn the truth. And unfortunately, politics is a massive part of multi-level marketing and how it has proliferated over the last 43 years since becoming legal. So yeah, and, and ending it on, on just the the idea that, as you always put it, right, it, it's all sides of politics. It's not, it's not Democrats, it's not Republicans, it's not blue or red, right? It, it's everyone who is involved. The direct selling caucus is split 50-50 um, in the U.S. because you, you do have that party affiliation. But yeah, it, it, when we talk about politics, it's more about the, the inner workings and dealings and negotiations made when making laws. And these companies are protected by, by the current laws that we have, and they're, they're wanting to make it worse. So we need to talk about it to make sure that it doesn't happen. Yeah. Well, thank you for talking to me about it today. I think a lot of people learned a lot of stuff and maybe some people were inspired to go, wait a second, this is sort of in my wheelhouse. Maybe this is how I can contribute to the anti-MLM community because this is what I do. And let me look into these numbers. That's interesting. So if that's you, um, welcome. We're so happy to have you. <laughs> yes, indeed. Thank, Thank you so much, so much Dave. Get to bed. You've got yes. students to teach in the morning. Again, I appreciate you staying up to talk to us. Um, and I'm sure we'll see you on the show soon again. Yes, very good. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to Life After MLM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. And follow us on social media at Life After MLM Podcast and my advocacy at The Real Roberta Blevins. You can find all of the links to the social accounts in our show notes. And if you just listened to that incredible story and you thought, oh my God, I have a story just like that that needs to be told, hit me up, therealrobertablevins at gmail.com. I would love to have you on the show to share your story and start your journey in life after MLM. See you next time, Hans. Thank you.